Oh, you guys can turn in your Bible to Genesis 39. And uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, I have been reminded uh, four times this morning, three, three or four times, to make sure that I tell you there are people with Bibles. If you don't have one, make sure you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, just take the one that they are giving you. Uh, that is a gift uh, from us. Genesis 39. If you were uh, with us Thursday evening, by the way, uh, as many of you were, uh, Pastor Brian closed our time, um, closed uh, the prayer and praise night, or praise and prayer, I should say, uh, by asking all of us to just pause and reflect um, on the work that God has done and is doing in uh, our church, in our, in our lives. He asked us to think about the lives that we've seen changed by the power of the gospel, to think about the lost people that we've seen saved here, uh, the saved people that we've seen maturing uh, here, and the mature people who are making disciples. Um, it was just a really good encouragement at the end of the night, and I just love how God works sometimes. Um, it's been like a really encouraging month with a recurring theme uh, for me. Uh, last weekend, we took 32 students and uh, 13 leaders to Muskoka Woods for our senior high retreat. Uh, not only was it a ton of fun, but we were praying for very specific things while we were there, and we saw God answering very specific prayers while we were there, which was awesome. Um, and then next weekend, as Brian mentioned, we are taking uh, 40 students uh, to junior high winter camp, um, along with a, a number of leaders, and I'm really looking forward to, again, how God is going to move uh, through that weekend. Then this past Tuesday, uh, we had our official uh, youth ministry for the new year kickoff, and uh, we started a new series in the book of Colossians. And one of the central themes in the first chapter of the book of Colossians um, is Paul reminding the Colossian church to just like stop and like look around and see the impact of God at work among them, that powerful gospel that is transforming lives in their church and all around the world. Like pay attention this is real. Uh, we serve a real God who is transforming real lives, and we just sang praise to him. And so for me, just over, the, over and over again, I've just been reminded uh, this month, in fact, this week, um, to just look around and recognize the presence of God with us. And today, as we look to Genesis 39, uh, it's going to be the same thing. Uh, but first, I kind of need to tell you how I feel uh, right now to be preaching from the book of Genesis I kind of feel like Ian's giving me the keys to his car. Um, like he just like held them out and uh, a little bit like, oh, I don't know. And then I took them and he's like, I trust you, uh, don't wreck. And so um, two hands on the steering wheel for this one, no shortcuts, I promise. Um, and to be honest, this is actually one of those passages where it might be tempting to take a shortcut, uh, to kind of lean back, relax a little bit. Because uh, today we're looking at the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, uh, which sounds like, I mean, many of you know it, it sounds like a pretty self-explanatory uh, passage. Most of you know what the main thing today is going to be. Um, I'll just say it now. You can write this down if you like. Uh, women are dangerous, <laughs> and men need to keep their pants on. Um, <laughs> this is a PG message. I don't think any of you need to worry. Um, but we are talking about a, a serious thing today, um, and you probably walk in here after reading this thinking, this passage must be primarily about sexual purity. 
And uh, we can learn a ton, and we will learn a ton about the battle uh, for sexual purity through this passage, but we cannot miss the main thing of this passage. Genesis 39 is about the power and the presence of the Lord. It's about Joseph's trust in God. It's about his refusal to compromise no matter where he finds himself, no matter who opposes him. And it's all because of one thing and one thing only, and that is the presence of God, the presence of the Lord, the presence of the covenant-keeping Lord God, Yahweh, who brings about his plan of redemption. In fact, the name Lord, uh, indicating the personal covenant name of Yahweh, it is mentioned uh, three times in chapter 38, and then it is mentioned eight times here in this chapter, and from here to the end of the book of Genesis, it's only gonna be mentioned one other time. And that makes it significant here, um, especially with two phrases that are repeated at both the beginning and the end of this chapter, which I wanna draw your attention to now. Uh, the the uh, phrases are, the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with him. These two phrases, and uh, I'll encourage you, if you write in your Bible, underline both of those at the beginning and the end. It'll frame the reference for how you read this every time you go back through your Bible. But what it tells us right now is that Moses is pointing something out. This story isn't primarily about purity. It's about God's presence, and Joseph is not the hero of this story. The Lord is. It's kind of like Moses is saying to his people, look at the power and the blessing of the Lord our God who is with us. Even when everything looks backwards, even when failure seems inevitable, even when you do the right thing and it backfires, even when we're hurting, even when it feels like or looks like or seems like we are all alone, the Lord is with us always and he never fails And so with the presence of the Lord framing this chapter, we're going to see three powerful benefits, uh, three things that come uh, when God is with us. And here's the first. Because the Lord is with us, we can bless others regardless of our circumstances. We can bless others regardless of our circumstances. As a reminder in uh, chapter 37, we were introduced to Joseph. Uh, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, Uh, He's presented as uh, actually like a good kid. He's a youth who is obedient to his parents. He listens. Um, He's a hard worker. uh, And he is hated by his brothers. And God gives Joseph uh, two dreams, which uh, essentially depict his family as bowing down to him. Uh, And of course, when he shares those dreams, uh, he doesn't really win the affection of his brothers. Uh, They want to kill him. And uh, they decide not to. They actually settle to sell him into slavery at the end of chapter 37, And then last week, Pastor Ian walked us through chapter 38, where Moses takes a step like sideways um, and shares the story of Judah and Tamar, which kind of feels at first like it's out of place, but at the same time, that passage kind of acts as this like dark backdrop to let the light of chapter 39 shine even brighter. As Ian mentioned last week, the promised redeemer will come through the line of Judah, which is filled with so much grace but the coming redeemer would look a lot like Joseph. So let's begin reading uh, chapter 39, starting in verse one. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. 
And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph, Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And we'll stop there. I think it's safe to uh, state the obvious. Uh, Joseph probably didn't want to be here. Uh, he's far away from his family, uh, his father in particular. He's in a foreign land. He's a slave. He's property. Uh, and just as we learned a couple weeks ago, life doesn't always go the way that you uh, dreamed it would. And he's experiencing that. And yet right away, Moses tells us in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph and he becomes a successful man. In fact, not just successful, but everything he does is successful. So Joseph begins to climb the ranks to a point where verse 6 tells us uh, that Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. So Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything except for the food that he ate, which is most likely a uh, cultural separation at mealtimes, but it does maybe, and I think we need to pay attention to this, maybe plant something in our mind. There's one thing that Joseph is not in charge of, one thing that he is not to partake in or have, a forbidden fruit, if you will, which I think foreshadows what is to come in the next section. But first, I want us to notice a few things here in these first six verses. First of all, I want us to notice what's not here. Now, if I asked you to describe Israel in one word uh, in the wilderness, what word might you use? And I'm a youth guy, you can yell it. Yes, I already heard it. Complaining, complainers, not like us, not like me. Uh, Complainers, right? We don't see any of this in Joseph. Uh, He's not grumbling, he's not whining, uh, he's not sitting there day after day moping around, being like, this sucks, I thought I had a good plan for my life, and my brothers are dumb, and I don't want to do anything. He's not dragging his feet, just trying to do the minimum to not get in trouble. He's not, uh, as is popular now, uh, quiet quitting, he's not doing that. He's a hard worker, and we see this in the text. The work that he did with his hands is what succeeded, and his master saw And Joseph found favor in his sight. Like, this wasn't just about the outcome. It's like, just watch this guy work. He is the ideal slave, the ideal employee. Like, you ever go to a restaurant? Uh, We'll use McDonald's just because I used to work there, and it's very easy. Uh, You walk in, and uh, the person taking your order just seems to hate their life. Like there are some people, some of these people, I mean, you all know what I'm talking about, and, and they might actually be okay at their job, but they definitely don't want to be there, and you can tell. And I've been a boss before. Um, I don't want to hire people like that. I don't want to promote, and I won't promote people like that. And as a customer, I certainly don't want to be served by someone like that. And, and the point is, you can tell when someone is a hard worker. You can see their pace. You can see the way that they interact with the people around them. And what Joseph was doing stood out in a way where Potiphar looked at him and said, that's the guy that I want to attend to my personal affairs. Joseph was the ideal employee, making good decisions, 
He worked hard with his hands, he was productive, and he was a blessing to those around him. Why? Well, it's obvious. Uh, the Lord was with him. Verse 3, the Lord caused everything he did to succeed in his hands. But I want you to notice something else here. Um, hard work and the Lord's blessing are not mutually exclusive. Like, I guess I'll put it this way. This is not like a mystical phenomenon, which is how I often view it. It's not like Joseph was taking a seed and he just like put it in the ground and poof, a tree came out of nowhere. This is not something uh, miraculous or, or magical. It's the work of his hands that is being blessed. So, okay, why did Joseph work hard then? And again, I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, again, because the Lord was with him. I, I think that's the right answer, but I think in order to fully understand it, we have to go back to chapter 37 and remember that Joseph was already depicted as a hard, honest worker. He was someone who listened, someone who obeyed. And we have to remember that God gave him two dreams, revealing a plan for Joseph's life. And certainly things had taken a dark turn at the end of chapter 37, but Joseph is alive. And, and no doubt on his way to Egypt, he had a lot of time to think and pray and wrestle through these things. The other thing we need to remember is uh, at this time, we're reading this immediately in six verses, but what takes place is probably over the span of like seven to 10 years. He wasn't promoted on day one, but what he must have done on day one was chosen to trust God, and little by little, he would see that God blessed his hard work, and that would motivate and encourage his faith to continue working hard to a point where everyone saw the Lord is with that guy. Finally, I want us to notice the outcome. Look down at verse five. It says, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for, jo for Joseph's sake. Joseph had become a blessing to the Egyptian's house. Moses doesn't write the name Potiphar here, if you notice, uh, and I think that's because he wants to remind us, the reader of, and, and Israel, of who this guy actually is. This is not an Israelite being blessed. The Lord is blessing an Egyptian. Not just an Egyptian, but a prominent Egyptian who is owning a slave Israelite. It's so significant. Remember what had just happened in chapter 38. The Lord was there, again, mentioned three times, but the Lord there was opposed to Judah. The Lord was putting Judah's sons to death. The, the promise of seed and land would have been on shaky ground at this point. But here, we see that the covenant-keeping Lord was with Joseph. And we see here the first mention of covenant blessing in the entire Joseph story, which ought to direct us back to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. If you look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God says, the Lord says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So despite his circumstances, what we're seeing here is that just like the Lord was with Isaac and, and Jacob before him, the Lord's covenant relationship presence is now with Joseph. 
That means there is hope of the fulfillment of God's promises, and it's going to come through the life of Joseph. And so I think in order to apply this and see what's going on, we need to take a step back and just look at the scene now as a whole. So we've got Joseph. Uh, He is a slave. He is not in good circumstances. But rather than developing a heart of uh, bitterness, an attitude of laziness, rather than giving up on the plans of God, he becomes a blessing to others, and it shows up not in just the work he does, but in his attitude, in his actions, in the way he talks to people. Everything is a blessing to others. This is because he believed that God had a plan for his life. He believed the Lord would be with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord did bless him, and the Lord enabled him to be a blessing to others. And so we just have to ask ourselves, okay, but how about me? How about me in my circumstances? Who, who do you look like more in your circumstances? Do you resemble more like Joseph or the complaining Israelites? Or to put it another way, are, are you more like Joseph or more like the uh, bad day McDonald's employee? Like at, at your work, in, in your home, in your school, as you maybe coach uh, one of your kids' sports teams? How are you when you serve in the church? How is your attitude? Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And that's regardless of our circumstances, regardless of who our boss is, regardless of whether or not we feel appreciated, regardless of how well we are paid. We have to remember, like, yeah, sure, Joseph is rising in power. He's a slave. He's not getting a plot of land. He's not getting paid. He is a slave. Regardless, even as a church, regardless of whether or not we have our own building or whether or not serving is easy or comfortable, we are to work heartily as unto the Lord. God has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for our church a plan for us to be a blessing to the nations. We carry the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Lord promises to be with us and he is with us. And and we have to stop again and just think like, just look around and see how God has already blessed you and is blessing people through the power of his word, the gospel in his church. Recognize the light that we have. Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, where? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. At the end of the day, the point here is our hope is too great. Our future is too secure. God's plan for us as believers, as a church, as his people, which we learn about in this book, his plans are too wonderful for us to just throw it away in laziness. And ultimately, I think that's where Joseph lands. He wants to please the Lord. He wants to trust his promises and trust that the Lord who is with him will figure all the other stuff out. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established And that conviction, I think, is just foundational for Joseph's success in the next section. If you look down, the second uh, half of verse 6 says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Temptation is coming. 
But because the Lord is with us, this is point two, uh, we can resist temptation regardless of its power. Let's continue reading. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out, and he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And again, we'll stop there. Uh, As it turns out, the blessing of the Lord extended to Joseph's looks, and that was a problem a problem like so many of us in this room face. So many of you are just like so ridiculously good looking. I know, I know how it is. It's really, really hard, right? Uh, but what I think Moses is doing here uh, in, in that verse and also in the whole section is I think he's helping us understand the massive power of this temptation. First of all, Joseph is magnetic. Like he's the ideal man. He's successful, he is a leader, he is attractive in how he engages with people, he is attractive in appearance. I don't think it's a stretch to assume that Potiphar maybe wasn't around enough, I mean he had a a prominent position, probably wasn't the greatest husband, clearly he didn't do the dishes. So Potiphar's wife then, it's pretty understandable that the power of attraction to Joseph would have been extremely high. Second, Uh, Joseph is probably at this point in time between the ages of 25 and 27. He's a single young man. As a slave, he wouldn't be allowed to be married. He would have no uh, prospect of having children. And he would have, um, we'll just say, desires as a young man. Beyond that, uh, Potiphar's wife is clearly persistent. If you look at verse 10, it says she solicited him like day after day. This wasn't a one-time thing, and, and this is so true of so many of our temptations. We, we think, oh, temptation might come. I better be able to say no, as if it's a one-time thing. And so often, it's not what that is. It's like, okay, I can say one, say no once, maybe twice, maybe three times. This is day after day after day. The persistence builds up the power. She was also extremely manipulative, Verse 10 also tells us that Joseph refused 
um, not just to be like intimate with her, but he refused to listen to her and he refused to even lie down beside her. I mean, you can just imagine the seductiveness of her speech. Joseph, just, just pay attention to me. Just, just talk to me. Just here, just sit down beside me. It's fine. I, I know you don't want to like, just lie down. We're not actually doing anything. Just a little bit. Your God, I'm sure, will be fine with it. Very clearly, I, like this is the woman described in Proverbs 7. Let's actually turn there for a moment. Proverbs chapter 7. If you look at, starting in verse 16 of, of Proverbs chapter 7, I feel like this just describes Potiphar's wife to a, a T, or, or the type of seductive speech, the types of things she may have said. Verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from, the Egyptian, from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. We've got time. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. We'll stop there for a second. What, the, the picture that we have painted here is extreme temptation. And, and how easy would it be for Joseph to rationalize this? Like things have been going well for him. He's seen the blessing of God. He's rising through the ranks. Maybe this was actually an opportunity. Maybe God would be okay with this. I mean, if you've got Potiphar's wife on your side, I mean, uh, maybe she can put in a good word. Maybe one day he could even earn his freedom. Flip that over. I mean, what if you say no? I mean, we know what happens in the story, but I'm pretty sure Joseph could figure out, figure it out, I don't want to be on her bad side. If she has power to help me, she has power to hurt me. But how much worse would it be to give in than to have her hurt me? Joseph understands how much worse. Proverbs 7, 22, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Joseph knows that there is danger. He recognizes it and, and he exercises wisdom. First thing he does is he reasons with her in verse 8, he essentially says, how on earth can I break my master's trust? How can I do that? In verse 9, um, he says, he is not greater, talking about Potiphar, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What we need to see here is, like, this would be an act of adultery, which would have been condemned even in the Egyptian culture. This would have been wicked. But, but again, we have to notice the language here. My master has not kept back anything from me except one thing. And, and this should bring us back to the Garden of Eden. You can eat of any tree. You can have all the blessing except for one. Joseph recognizes here that to give in to Potiphar's wife would be to sin against God. And I think there's a few things at play here. I think Moses is telling us something about Joseph that the coming seed of promise would be a better Adam, would be one who would be able to resist the forbidden fruit. But I also think we're seeing the significance of God's presence with Joseph from earlier in the chapter. 
The Lord was with Joseph, and he had seen it over and over and over again for, again, like seven to ten years. And, and so I think it's this heightened awareness of the presence of the Lord that actually fuels Joseph's ability to resist this temptation. And I think it's evidenced by him saying, how could I sin against God when he's with me, when he's near to me, even now? Yet so many of us in this room fall to the same type of temptation. The power of sexual temptation in our culture is massive, and that might be an understatement. The social acceptance of no strings attached hookup culture, the prevalence and ease of access to pornography, like I don't even need to go through the stats. You know sitting here, you know sexual sin is a problem in your life, Anything outside of God's design for sex within marriage is a problem. That's why Matthew 5, Jesus says, it would be better for you to gouge your eye out than have lust destroy your soul. Because lust is destructive. It destroys marriages, it destroys families, it destroys careers, productivity, it destroys joy, it destroys souls. And while this passage certainly highlights sexual sin, I think the seductive nature of, of temptation is something that we see here universally across all sin. For, for some of you, it's the seductive nature of laziness. I'll just watch another show. I'll just sit here and do nothing again. Some of us, we just spend way too much time doing the wrong things. For some in this room, it's, it's anger. It's just so easy to get ticked off. I just want to control things. It's so easy to, to lose it on my kids or my wife. And for some of us, we've already brought it up and you've probably already been convicted as I have. We just whine and complain. It's too easy to mope around and just play a victim card. But I, I do want to point out something because, again, this passage references sexual sin. Um, laziness, anger, complaining, these are all side effects of sexual sin, pornography in specific, along with social anxiety, depression, low motivation, feelings of guilt and shame. This is a real issue that Joseph has been tempted with, and this is a real issue for us, even within the church. We are not immune. And so I do want to um, take from the story and share four strategies um, that I think are, are helpful and, and will help us when we face temptation. The first one is this. Remember the presence of the Lord. God is with us. He sees everything. He knows all things. Proverbs 15:3 says, "The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good." He sees everything. And as believers, we have the spirit of God with us always in our heart. And so the first strategy is to have a heightened understanding of what that means. A heightened uh, recognition of the omnipresence of the Lord, of the spiritual presence of the Lord. How can I sin against the God who is with me right now? How can I look at that? How can I have that conversation? How can I stay late at work? You, you name, how can I do that when God is with me? This is why daily time in God's word is so important. This is why on my phone the background is qualifications for elders. This is why some of you have scripture on the backs of your phone, so that every time you pick up the device, you are reminded of God's word and who God is. Number two, the second strategy is recognize the blessing of the Lord. As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, it's just so good to stop and pay attention to what God is doing here. 
We have the true gospel at work in our church. The same one that's transforming lives all around the world. But in order to recognize the blessings of the Lord, you have to be here. And granted, you're all here right now. But you have to do more than just show up on a Sunday. You have to be plugged in. You have to come to praise and prayer nights. You have to uh, be in a small group. You have to be serving. You need to be surrounded as frequently as possible with the people of God so you can actually see and hear and be reminded day after day, exhorted every day, as long as it is today, of what God is doing and the power of the gospel and the transforming work that is happening. The reason some of you are lacking in the felt presence of the Lord is because, and the reason you're falling into temptation over and over again is because you're not plugged in. Because you're not plugged in, you're not able to see and experience and recognize the blessing of the Lord. Like to, to, to just think, how could I throw away the blessing of the Lord? And, and men, I'll just give you a very specific uh, action item. Uh, free Indeed is coming up. This should be like a non-negotiable. Go be blessed and experience the blessing of the Lord at that conference. Number three, realize the plans of the Lord So every believer in this room has been called into the service of the Lord. Uh, You've been called with a purpose. Uh, God has a plan for your life. It's true. You are an ambassador for Christ. You are a minister of reconciliation. Like, Like you are used by God to reconcile sinners to God. That's awesome. You are a light in the darkness You are a messenger of good news. And so I want you to think for a moment about what that might look like today in your circumstances and even think maybe like 10 years down the road in your circumstances. What is God's plan for you as an ambassador, as a minister of reconciliation, as a light in a dark world? I want you to think as an employee, as a student maybe, as a young adult, as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as an empty nester, what does it look like to be living out the plan God has for you? And I'll I'll tell you, for for me, obviously this has been on my mind all week, Um, and uh, especially last night as I was was preparing, and I'm just like thinking like, uh, Christina, my wife and I, we were like wrestling with the kids on the, or with the girls on the bed, it was a ton of fun. Earlier in the day, took the boys to hockey, And I just thought a minute about my family and I thought about who God calls me to be as a husband and as a father. And and then I think that image, like five years, 10 years, 20 years down down the road, my obligation to teach and to train and to care for and provide for, I don't want to throw that away. God's plan for me is very, very good God's will for me is very, very good. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 comes to mind. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, to be made more like Jesus. Right after that, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And I want this so bad. I want the sanctification. I want to abstain so bad because I want God to use me as a husband and a father. And, and I look at my family and I see what's at stake. I look every Tuesday at the youth group and I see what's at stake. I can't, I can't throw it away. I mean, think about what was at stake for Joseph. This is fascinating. Had Joseph compromised, had he lost his integrity, had he not been sent to that prison, which again, we know is coming, 
how would that have changed the rest of the story of redemption? Now, uh, I love this quote from D.A. Carson. Um, It's so good. Obviously, God could turn any situation around, but I just love how he words this. God is behind the scenes, no doubt. But humanly speaking, Jesus comes and saves us because Joseph kept his trousers on. That's so good. Joseph's integrity brings about God's plan of redemption. And, and do you notice what Joseph did? When he remembers the presence of the Lord, when he recognizes the blessing of the Lord that he doesn't want to lose out on, when he realizes the, the plans, thinks about the, the dreams and knows God has a plan, the response to temptation is just a no-brainer. He runs. Like what, what a picture for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 8, 8, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions, like panic run. I don't know what he looked like. It probably looked terrible. I won't act it out. But like, he ran not wearing the clothes. It was a no-brainer. I don't care what happens next. I got to maintain my purity. I'm not going to go against the Lord my God. Last week, we saw Judah was willing to trade away his life for the fleeting pleasures of sin. But Joseph says, no way. I'm out of here. And he runs. So the last strategy I want to give you here is um, number four, receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Joseph was able to overcome this uh, powerful temptation, but he was not perfect. Uh, neither are you or, or me. Uh, and so some of you may be sitting here and you're just feeling the weight of your sin, which is, which is good. The Holy Spirit convicts Listen to that. Invite that that is good. The Holy Spirit does not condemn, but he does convict. And while Joseph was not perfect, what he does is he points to the one who was perfect and is perfect. Jesus Christ, who overcame all temptation. And listen to this from Ephesians 1.7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Because the Lord is with us, we can resist temptation, no matter how powerful it is. And because the Lord is with us, we can repent, we can turn from our sin, we can run to our Father, redeemed, we can find grace and mercy. Joseph runs. And he runs knowing there's going to be consequences, and uh, there were consequences. Uh, As he runs out of the house, the true colors of uh, Potiphar's wife are put on full display. Uh, Once she was um, an appealing temptation, Uh, now she is disgusting. She's a spiteful liar. She is wicked. Um, You could argue she is racist. She is manipulative. And as a result, Potiphar would throw Joseph in prison, which leads us to our third and final point. Because the Lord is with us, we can press on regardless of our suffering. We can press on regardless of our suffering. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him And put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor, again, 
in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention, just like Potiphar, paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph has certainly fallen uh, from grace. Uh, I I heard it said he went from the penthouse to the prison. Uh, But there is a silver lining of hope here. Uh, Typically, a case of rape, as what Potiphar's wife has claimed, ought to result in uh, his death. He should have been killed for it, and in Egyptian culture, that would have been normal. Uh, But for some reason, he isn't put to death. He's actually put into a prison, and that is a, a silver lining. We'll find out about some people he meets there next week. Uh, but, but it's like, well, why would Potiphar do that? And, I mean, there's a lot of speculation. I mean, maybe Joseph actually did, you know, argue his case and cast some doubt into Potiphar's mind. Or, or maybe Potiphar's wife was just known for this, and Potiphar's like, oh, it happened again, and got to get her out. You know, like, it could have been one of those things. It could have been that uh, Potiphar recognized just how valuable Joseph was, and he knew the Lord was with him. He thought, I can't put this guy to death. We, we don't know. But in any case, Joseph is alive, and verse 21 says, the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. And, and Joseph, who has already experienced the blessing of the Lord, continues then to serve faithfully and trust him. I love how uh, Alan Ross uh, puts this. The first evidence of God's blessing gave Joseph, Joseph the foundation to resist the temptation. The last one, the last evidence of God's blessing gave him the confirmation that he did the right thing. This was not where Joseph wanted to be and circumstances had certainly gone from bad to worse, but he was able to press on because the Lord was with him. And so as we look back at this whole scene, the the whole chapter, I I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Israel for a moment. In in the wilderness, hearing this, they too are slaves or were slaves in Egypt. They too followed the Lord. And now they were in the wilderness. They were not in the promised land yet. They weren't where they dreamed or where they thought. But like Joseph, they have the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God. It's almost like Moses is saying here, Israel, you don't need to be in the promised land to work heartily for the Lord and to be a blessing to the nations. The Lord is with us and he promised. Israel, you have the presence of that exact same covenant-keeping Lord. You have a vision and a promise of a redeemer. You know what's coming. You have that dream. And, and Israel, even if you should suffer, No matter how hard it feels, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how backwards, the Lord will never fail to keep his promises, just like he never failed to protect Joseph. And to us, the church today, to all of us, what does this mean for us? 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. That's an attitude change. Don't complain. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? This is so good. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God is with you. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't turn out the way that we imagine or the way that we think it should. And this story reminds us that that sometimes God's blessing isn't in removing us from really hard circumstances, but it's in his presence with us, going through it with us while we suffer. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And, And he has overcome the world because the covenant-keeping God did fulfill his promise. He did send a redeemer, the one who, through his life, death, and resurrection, became a blessing to all the nations that we get to participate in. The one who resisted temptation, who knew no sin at all, but fulfilled the law completely, the better Adam. The one who pressed on, who, for the joys that was set before him, endured the cross. His name is Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. And because of the cross, we are united with him. And his resurrection presence has been given to us. It will never leave us. He will never leave us. He is always with us, which means that as we carry out the great commission, blessing all the nations, making disciples of all nations, we have the power of the Lord God with us. And so in closing, I I just want us to think the inverse of everything that we just talked about for a moment. Like, what if the Lord wasn't with Joseph? What what if the Lord is, is not with us, was not with us? What if as a church, everything we did was apart from the presence and the power and the blessing of God with us? Where would we find hope? How would we bless others? How would we resist temptation? How would we press on when things got difficult? How does redemption, forgiveness of of sins happen apart from God being with us, apart from the presence of the covenant-keeping God? And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, actually, the Lord is not with me, and it's very evident. I don't have joy. I don't have hope. I don't have forgiveness of sins. And I just want to invite you right now, as you're invited every week, maybe today is the the day where you accept the invitation. Put your life in the hands of the covenant-keeping God who promises to be with you always, no matter what. And sing along with us, say along with us, us, live this message along with all of us Lord, I need you. I need your presence. God with us is the game changer for all of this. So let's pray. God, the prayer is so simple. God, first of all, thank you so much for everything you can teach through such a familiar story. But God, we need you. God, we need you if we want rest. God, we need you if we want righteousness. God, we need you if we want forgiveness. We need you if we want to be a blessing to anybody. God, we need you if we are to resist temptation. God, we we need you for your grace and mercy. God, we need you for hope. So God, I just ask that you would be with us 
Holy Spirit, convict of sin and may we see your kindness. May it bring us to repentance and may we be excited to go on this week knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.